Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Andrew Nabil and I are your co-hosts today. Peer review, for better or worse, is the process where we quality control publications in our field. The reviewers usually work as volunteers and spend a long time reviewing manuscripts. I struggle with reviewing papers, and it can take up to 10 days for me to go through a manuscript. So today, I'm opening the discussion to Andrew and Nabil to ask, how do you rapidly review a bioinformatics paper in 10 days or less? Go. So what do you want to know? I want to know, how do you just like rapidly see a paper that's worth actually reviewing? Or how do you find the paper that needs to be rejected in five minutes and stop wasting your time? That's that's my first question. So when I get a, a review request coming in, right, hopefully it will have the abstract so I can have a quick look. But if it's a really, really bad paper, okay, I don't fully review it. I'll have a quick scan, maybe of the abstract and uh, intro that kind of thing. And then I will push it back to the editor and say, listen, this is a car crash. You need to do an editorial, a desk reject, and don't bother, you know, wasting any reviewer's time. And in most cases, actually, the editors will just reject at that point, or they might wait for a second person to say, this is terrible, terrible paper. And that's where it's glaringly unsound. And there's nothing anyone could come back and say it will redeem it. But then the next level down from that would be where you actually have to go and write up a review. And you don't necessarily have to review the whole paper. If there's fundamentals that destroy the paper and the data, then you just got to be upfront about those and say, listen, I don't know you've done experiments and no controls. Everything here is unsound. All these claims you're making are just potentially wrong. And that's a straight reject. You don't have to go through all the little nitty gritty details. Obviously, people like bigger reviews or more feedback, but that's only if you've got time. So that's kind of my first level of reject. But I don't even accept a lot of the reviews that I get sent. I get sent quite a lot of review requests. Straight off, I don't like to review for Elsevier because they leech off free labor from academics to make billions. And so that's not a company I review for. I always offer, and I say, listen, if you're prepared to pay the full economic cost of my time, I will absolutely review this paper, like on a thousand dollars, whatever. They never come back to me and, and you know, say yes. But I live in hope. Maybe they will pay me someday. That makes my life a little bit easier because I don't have to review those. But then the next level down will be, say, society papers and people I know uh, or have heard of or that kind of thing. And I, I'd usually accept those because they're a non-profit, they're people clearly active in the fields who know what they're doing already. So they're, they're unlikely to submit stuff that's going to be just wasting my time. And then finally, if I just happen to have time at that exact point to review other papers, I will. And I'll say yes. 
But if I don't have time and I'm overworked, I'll just reject straight out. What I don't do is accept a paper and then don't get around to it. That's just, it's not fair to anyone. So it's either then or not at all for those kind of papers. So that's kind of my initial screening. Oh, and then the, the final thing is, if they make it so difficult for me to log in to review a paper, to even get the paper in the first place, again, I'll just reject it. You know, I don't want to have to remember a login that someone else has set up with a different password and then click through 20 different screens asking me for lots of personal information as a reviewer. That's just insane just to get the paper to review it. Ideally, the people asking for the review should send you the paper or at least have a link so you can download it, not make you jump through 20 hoops to do this free work for this commercial company. Sorry, I'll get off my high horse now. I feel I feel the need to, to put an extra incantation of this does not reflect the opinions of my employer. That was a high horse, but I appreciate that. It's quite honest. I have uh, memories of my advisor. I don't know if he listens or not. <laughs> Just getting truly upset at the services that you mentioned and just kind of rage quitting for the day on those. <laughs> Cause I mean, they, they don't, well, at least back then during my PhD, they didn't make it always easy. I think that they've been making it easier. No, they're no. <laughs> making it harder. Some journals will let you log in with ORCID IDs and um, which is great as a reviewer because they only have one login, but usually you have to jump to your hoops just to accept a paper. Okay, so that was the answer to how you might find a paper to reject really quickly. Does, does any of that resonate with you also, Nabil? I've had like a couple of the ones Andrew's talking about where you just read it and you just go, this is, no. <laughs> like they just, they have no idea what they're doing. And uh, you, you do have to push back on the editor sometimes because sometimes the editor is handling a manuscript that isn't their expertise and they're not able to make that assessment. So they... On, on the strength of the cover letter, I don't know, they decide to send it out for review and it really shouldn't have gone out to, for review. And that's fine, like that, that happens. So yeah, if, it, if it's really that bad, then yeah, just push back on it. So that saves you a lot of time. The way I approach a, a paper is if it gets sent to me, there are certain journals I won't review for anymore. I don't agree with what they do. So I don't, I just say, no, I'm not doing it. I will be more likely to accept it if it's from a scientist as the editor who I know or could research and, or the authors I know of, I'm aware of the, what they do or, or whatever, then I'll have a look at it. Or the abstract is, is super duper interesting. I've always been disappointed with that. Like you read an abstract that's really amazing. And then you get the manuscript and go like, oh wait, this actually isn't, they've kind of oversold it a bit. It's like, oh, okay, this is a bit by the numbers, whatever, but usually those aren't that bad. So usually they kind of honeypot me in and I <laughs> I go through and I just like review the whole thing when I probably shouldn't. I should probably figure it out sooner that it, that it should be rejected. Yeah. So let's say I've gotten past that point where I've seen something that isn't, sometimes I get offered to review things that are just something else, something random in computer science, like encryption protocols for genome sequences. And I was like, okay, no, like this is, I mean, I can see why they would think I could do that, but no. But once it's gotten to that, or once it's from a journal that I don't think is just outright predatory or something like that, and I get it and I read it, my first thing is to check the results. I don't read the intro, unless unless it's a field that I'm a little little fuzzy on. 
but I will just go straight to the results. If it's like a genomics, microbial, whatever thing, and just go through those really quickly and just see, and then flick back to the methods and see like, is the methods, it's a house of cards, any publication. If the base layer of the methods and the results just don't make any sense, there's no point fine tuning their grammar. There's no point fine tuning their discussion. There's no point saying you've forgotten to cite people in the introduction because it's just, it's wrong. It's just wrong. So you just say, this is wrong. The methods are wrong. Results are wrong. Any inferences based on those results cannot stand because it's fundamentally technically has an issue. So you just say that. You're just like, that's it. I didn't read the discussion because there's no point. Usually when I review a paper, I'll break it the comments up into to multiple sections. So I'll have a uh, major comments, which are kind of showstoppers, minor, which are optional, and then just kind of typos and minor little tidbits. But like Nabil, depending on the paper, I'll have a first pass and then decide, should I proceed to a full in-depth review or not? When it goes in-depth, I'll look into like the supplementary material and see have they got accession numbers and are the accession numbers real and do, are they accessible. I'll go to sometimes quite uh, insane levels of double checking things because that's all you can do. You can't repeat the sequencing experiments they've done. So you have to look for these other proxies. And I know I've looked up for some papers like information and stuff like that and then wondered why is there disconnects, uh, this kind of stuff. So you can go in, into it in quite detail and you go down rabbit holes, but you don't usually have time. And usually the best you can hope for is just to try and make sure the paper is reasonably sound and anything more than that is a bonus. And then after that, you do get a lot of papers where it's great that they've done the work, but it's been done a hundred times already. And it's more like a master's project. And that's great for some journals, they don't accept that at all. So you have to know the type of journal you're reviewing for. And for other journals is fine. So you have to change, as a reviewer, you do have to change your expectations of what they're expecting from authors depending on the journal. So if it's plus one, then anything that looks remotely like science and is technically sound is fine. And if it's other maybe journals which are, are more niche, they have different sets of criteria and you just kind of have to keep an eye on those just so that you're, review reflects that because it, in, in some journals they'll say okay there has to be some novelty whereas in plus one there doesn't really need to be novelty it just needs to be good solid science and it can be negative results and this kind of thing so you have to know what you're actually reviewing and that takes a little bit more work sometimes when for some for some papers because they don't fit in nicely into any any box and then other papers are just absolutely awesome and you don't want to give authors extra work to do because that maybe that work might take them two years to complete these extra experiments or little tweaks when it's not necessary. And that's what really annoys me with some reviewers because often when you do review, you will, when the editor sends it to decision, they'll CC or BCC you and uh, you can see what all the other reviewers said. And often I disagree absolutely with some of those reviewers. And on a few occasions, I've gone back to, to the editor and said, listen, reviewer three is a complete idiot and does not understand the field and has made these major mistakes and has asked them to do silly things or rejected for silly reasons and it's clear they don't have the expert knowledge and uh, you should ignore them so fighting the the corner of of the author sometimes and it, it's interesting because well everyone is fallible and as a reviewer you need to understand that you're one cog in the process, but you can feed back these things. And I'm sure editors will appreciate 
honest opinions as long as you're not saying silly stuff because you don't like the person or you don't believe in in vaccines or something like that yeah those are great points yeah i think following on from that it's you have to pay attention to the scope in which you're operating in and that's a good way to save yourself a lot of time if it is a, a kind of plus one journal where it is just based on technical merit that's all you're assessing so you don't need to comment on anything else and that makes your review really easy because you just go to it technically it's fine done other journals I've had to do, they explicitly ask you to comment on the novelty of the work and how it fits into the field. And you have to make that statement. If you don't know, oh, that's another thing. If you don't know something, just say you don't know. Just say they've done laboratory experiments. I don't do laboratory work. I can't assess it. I can't assess. I don't know that much about E. coli, I can't assess this aspect of the work. I can assess everything else, but not this. So I defer to the other reviewers or do something else. Just don't ask me on this part. That's okay. And that saves you from agonizing over sections that you may not necessarily know about and you don't like, kind of have to fudge it. Just be honest. Just give your honest opinion, as Andrew's saying. And and understand the scope of what you, where you're reviewing in for, yeah, just that scope. I was just going to say, one, one thing I'm guilty of sometimes is checking uh, like med archive or bioarchive to see has someone actually uploaded a paper there already and then you go and you have a look and see basically is it any different and has anyone actually read the paper if it's been up for a year and it's in a totally different journal's format and no one has read the paper in that time then you're thinking okay well what's wrong here has this paper just been shopped around 10 different journals and the authors haven't taken anything on board from previous reviews or have they substantially changed their preprint and made it better and whatever from the original preprint and that that can give you actually information which kind of it's not in the submission but it does give you other information whether you should waste your time or not doing a review because no point if if you are like the 20th reviewer to look at this paper and the authors haven't taken anything on board they're just chancing their arm then is there any point in you actually going and do a full in-depth review? I think one thing that's sort of on the flip side of that is often reviewers will make this mistake where they, where the commentary that they make isn't necessarily objective problems with the work. It's just that the work wasn't done in the way they would have done it. They wouldn't have done that experiment. They wouldn't have done that uh, analysis. They would have used this tool versus that tool. They stonewall a paper, but they don't necessarily give like an objective reason why this thing is not like, suitable. And they sort of say, well, if it's my way, it's, it's my way or the highway. That's not your role as a reviewer. And I'd see like when you see open review, because you always see the other comments from the other reviewers, right? So when you see that and then you're like, oh, no. And, and that takes a lot of time as well. That's like, it's a waste of time to do that. Just don't go down that at all. It doesn't help anyone. No one's asking for it. And it's a waste of your time to try and think about what else, what would you done in that? Like, you're not them. Just keep it objective and you can keep it quite, quite focused. On the flip side of that, actually, often authors are terrible at selling their own work. And you read through a paper and re- you review it. And then you're like, hang on a second. This, this comment they've made on page 21, this is like, the key result for the entire paper. And it's amazing. And it's something the community really, really needs. And they haven't even mentioned it in the abstract. I mean, what are they playing at? And you highlight that as a reviewer. And it's nice when you find these things. Well, you shouldn't 
be finding them. But it's nice when you're able to tell uh, an author your work is even better than uh, you you kind of expected it. Yeah, no, that's also true. People do undersell a little bit. They can get so buried in a project that they don't see the big picture. So there is an opportunity to point that out. Or maybe they think, oh, everyone will see supplementary figure 4B and know that it's like an amazing result. Well, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sort of guilty of that. I had like this amazing figure in, in our Haiti cholera paper, or maybe a few of them, but like we could only limit ourselves to like three figures and other times that we published. It's, it is hard to get that perspective until peer review sometimes. So maybe going away from from the negative part, like how how to quickly reject the paper in 10 days or less, maybe maybe the review itself. So you guys have come up with some points already on, on how to actually make that review. Some of my questions are basically, how do you go through the review efficiently? How do I not flounder for two days on a review? How do I just write it up in a morning? Well, how do you normally read a paper, Lee, that's been published? I usually read all of the introduction and then I quickly, um, I move on to methods. How do you guys do this? And I, I basically, actually, yeah, I'll read it straight through. And I try to do that quickly as a once over. And then I'll go back more carefully and, and gather my thoughts. So it's like a second reading. And that takes a long time, especially if I have to go back and like verify that they, especially if it's like a software paper, like verify that the software works, if they're publishing on that or verify that their accessions are online. Like, there are certain checks that have to be done. So that, that second pass takes takes much longer. Yeah, I also always review the code if there is code. I did find one, one time like a 300 line bash script and it was full of like just print statements and stuff like that. <laughs> and that, that was a pipeline. <laughs> I, I had one that was supposed to be a software tool. And basically, it just used another software tool inside it and changed the output a bit. And they were saying, this is a new way of doing things. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> it's not a new way. It's not a new fantastic algorithm. You're just running this with custom parameters and fine tuning the output. That's not, no, <laughs> that's not the same thing. So that, that was fun. So it is very important to check the code if you're reviewing a bioinformatics paper. If they don't provide the code, that is an immediate reject from me. I might make comments about the manuscript, but I will always reject a paper without code for software. So uh, this just reminded me of a paper actually that someone else saw, they didn't review it, but it's in plus one and it's quilt plots and it's basically heat maps. Someone went and rebranded a heat map. No. Don't know how that got past peer review, but there you go. It happens. It happens more than you think kind of thing. So out of your method, I'd do it differently. If I'm reading the intro, I'd only read the last paragraph because the last paragraph is the one that says, here we aim to blah, 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 da, 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 right? If that paragraph does not make any sense to me because they're saying words I don't get, like we're looking at Opron, blah, da, da, and we're doing this with something, something, and I don't understand that system at all, then I will go back and read more of the intro. But if I kind of get like, oh, here we're doing this, 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 it's like, okay, fine, sure. Then... I would go to the results. I thumb through the figures first. I never read the body text. I read the figures first, get the gist. I will then skim the body text results. If there's anything that looks a bit complicated, like requires knowledge of parameters, then I will skim the methods to make sure that that's okay. If they say that they've done genome assembly and it says shovel there, I don't go back and fuss on it. 
And, and if it doesn't matter for the result, there's no point like fussing about methodology if it doesn't really make a difference. And then, then I'll skim a bit of the discussion. And that I'll do in about half an hour to one hour. I will leave the paper alone. I'll go away and do something else. Usually I'll skim it at night, like an hour, or I'll skim it in the morning or something. Have breakfast, have a coffee, lunch, something, something else. Do some work, I don't know, whatever. Then come back to it later and then do the second stage of what you're talking about, which is the the review. But I've already, because you need to kind of, and this is coming back to Andrew's point, like they don't structure, often authors don't structure the paper with the ideas in a way that one thing leads to another and they don't necessarily set up what they're trying to do at the beginning. So you have to kind of be aware of all of the results and the method to then be able to say, what are they actually trying to do? And then with that knowledge, then you go back through it and then you go, oh, okay, this is what makes sense. It's like a film you have to watch twice because you don't catch everything the first time around, all the little twists and the little like, there's all these like little, little, um, precursors and, and foreshadowing. Oh my God, scientific writers love to have foreshadowing in the work. They don't, just tell me like you found blah, like you, this is the point, you found blah. No, we have to like, we do this analysis in this, in this data set. It's like, okay, here's all the figures of the analysis, whatever. And then we find out blah, blah. And that half of those figures don't really matter for that. It's not really driving that point. So you have to do, so I always find that first pass really helps me. I was uh, listening to a talk by, uh... A well-respected uh, food microbiologist in, in our field in the U.S. I won't name names, and he has a nice, nice German accent, almost like the Schwarzenegger accent. And he, he had in his talk, uh, as I tell my students, this is not a murder mystery. <laughs> don't, don't make me wonder what it is. Just tell me. And I love that the professors are out there um, telling their students to to get off of that and to to actually tell people what they're writing about. It's, it's very difficult to unlearn that because when you go through school and you go through English class, literature class, and you're writing like, you're taught to write like an assignment, like a creative writing assignment, like a story. And this is not that, this is a technical document and it's just meant to communicate the information. So just do it clearly, concisely, spoil it as much as you like. No, basically nobody except for you, it sounds Lee, reads a manuscript from start to finish. You do? Yeah, I mean, a first pass all the way through. And then at the end of that, a quick first pass, then I will decide if it's a really bad paper or a really good paper or somewhere in between. Usually it's in between. But if it's a really, really bad paper, then I don't want to waste any more time because it's not one thing usually that's wrong in a bad paper. It's usually a lot. It's usually every every paragraph has some kind of car crash in it. Okay, usually I skim. I skim very light and then I kind of iterate and get deeper and deeper. I, I want to give credit, though, to people who have taught me in the past. It's it's not for lack of trying. I just, I can't get myself into to reading fast. Everyone tells me to, to go to the figures first. Just big disclaimer there so that, that all the people who've come before me don't aren't yelling at me behind their, their podcast devices. So where I find the most egregious offenses is actually in the methods. And I read those in detail, particularly for bioinformatics papers, because quite often that's where people, they can't hide behind flowery language. Either they put the stuff in or they don't. And when they say they're using, they did this bioinformatics thing, they used some ancient version of an assembler that no one has used in 20 years. 
then, then there's a problem there. Or they've used, they've got short read data and they've used a long read assembler or something like that, some crazy stuff. And that's where they can't get away from it. Or if they have, I don't know, they've used some obscure sequencing platform, I don't know, like PGM or something. And then they've gone and used like a Nanopore software to analyze it. Or they've forgotten that uh, these things have error rates and they haven't accounted for that. Or they've gone and reinvented the wheel badly. So yeah, the methods really, you can't hide there. That's that's a good place to really identify if a paper has been done well and is sound or is on shaky ground. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Met- method sections are, are super important for the fidelity of the work. And, and if you can dismiss it on that, that's it. Nothing else matters if the methodology is wrong. And then what would you put in your letter back to the editor? I didn't read the rest of the paper. The methods are shaky, reject. Something on the lines of major errors. This is technically unsound. And here are the major problems. And it's usually going to be a few bullet points because there's usually going to be car crash of a thing. Like, for example, I reviewed a paper recently. It was using 16S data and there are no controls. There were, they were using 16S to identify species level data and 16S, like it doesn't work down to species. Everyone knows that. And if they're making us these mad assertions and, and whatnot, then they're on very, very shaky ground. There's no replicates. There like, there's so many things were wrong. They had, they spent a lot of time reinventing like a very basic pipeline like classifying reads isn't a hard thing there's a million pipelines out there you don't need to do it again anyway yeah i I think for me that's custom homespun stuff these days for most of what we do is a bad sign it means they don't know the literature and it means that and it's sort of like not only am i having to review the result and the 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 interpretation of that result, I now have to think carefully about is the out the method that they've used, the thing they've just created themselves even sound. The, the methods are a really good way of, of pulling a, a paper apart and making sure everything's good. I had one not that was more subtle to Andrew's example that I reviewed recently, where the methods were fine, actually, like the basic method, like they've done genome assembly, they've done alignment, they've done this, 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 it's like, okay, fine, this is all good. Figures were fine, heat maps, everything's fine. Then they wanted to say things. They wanted to make correlations between this host and this and this operon and that and so on. And there the paper didn't explain how you're sort of like, okay, if this gene, on what basis is this gene present? On what basis is this association? Like what's, you're saying it's in a significant amount of the genomes, of the cultures, Mm -hmm. how, okay, Define significant. Like you can't, you can't just say the words. Do never just throw the word significant around in a scientific paper, because it's like, well, statistics. Everyone's ears perk up. P value, like, like don't, don't, randomize, like null hypothesis, randomization tests. Like, come on, you just, you just, are begging for for something with that if you say significant. But that was it. And then I just went through everything. It's like, okay, you've you're making claims. You have no real analytical basis for that and it's like i don't know what to say everything else is fine but and then you just junk you just say well your discussion's no good like what do you want me to do you can't say those things i think i got some good tips on how to how to be fast on this i'm learning from you read the figures first if the method also read the methods in that first pass right away if, if it's shaky then it's shaky and yeah and those can... two those two have to pair so that's like stage one 
clear that. And I think Andrew agrees with that, like stage one, clear methods and results. Stage two is then the discussion and whether their interpretation makes sense or not. And then, then it's everything else is up to code. Is the structure of the paper make sense? Are they talking about the thing? Are they really emphasizing the things you think are important? Are they missing things? Is the introduction citing what it needs to cite? Is it introducing the ideas? Often they jump into the results and they don't explain like, why are we interested in this secretion system? Like, what is this doing in the first place? How is it different? Like, that's not even in the intro. So you, you comment on that afterwards. And then, and then this is a separate thing. I might even do, if it's a big paper, I might do a third pass, which is a completely separate process of grammar, accession codes, the table, the call outs for the tables are right. The figure legends are right. The figure legends are detailed enough. The supplementary material, the tables are all formatted nicely. I can read them. I will kick a fuss if someone tries to send a table like a table list of strains and it's like a word document that's been converted into a PDF, I'll say, no, make it an Excel sheet. It is a pain in the ass to try and go back and try and like copy paste succession codes out of a PDF word document <laughs> thing. I had, I think the comment I left on the last one I did was for the love of God, don't, I didn't say that for the love of God. I said, please, please do not, please make your figures, including the supplementary ones that you submit separately the say an A4 page, keep them all the same size, because it is impossible to review a manuscript where if the body text is an A4 page and then the figures attached to it at the bottom are the size of a billboard. Oh, it's it's they're huge. That's messy too. It's like you can't. It's like it just makes my as I was saying, like it makes my life really difficult to try and go backwards and forwards. Because you zoom in 100% and then you have to zoom into like 10% to see what's going on. And there's really no reason for it if you're using like Inkscape or Illustrator or whatever to make your PowerPoint or whatever to make your figures. You don't, there's really not, just be nice to the reviewer. So that's like, yeah, but that might be part three of going through and just putting those <laughs> comments in. Yeah, let's do, let's do a war stories on this later on. But they're not, they're not that <laughs> bad these days. I don't know. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd sound too much. We'd sound too much like grumpy, grumpy old men complaining about what mistakes people make in their <laughs> manuscripts. We'll get there one day. Page numbers. Include page numbers. That's nice. All right. I'm going to cut you off before we talk about font sizes and everything. <laughs> this this was good. I really appreciate it. Andrew and Nabil, thank you so much. And I hope this helps everybody else too. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.